Well, we have a, a great, great time uh, in worship, and now we are going to engage in the words of God here in First Timothy chapter 1. Uh, this is our second sermon, and so if you've been here uh, brand new, you're new here today, uh, you haven't missed much, we are in our second sermon in the series on First Timothy. So if you will uh, turn to First Timothy with me, and we could uh, look at the word of God together uh, this morning as we are worshiping him. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and uh, uh, verses are from 3 to 6. Read through this together. He says, <clears throat> As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myth and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. It's about in the word of prayer. Our Father, we're grateful for this morning. We're grateful that we get to come before your word and understand it and seek to apply it to our lives. And we pray that we would grow much from this, Lord, as a result of this morning, um, our study, and we be more close to you, God. And and more fervent about your purposes in our lives. We thank you, and we pray that we will be worshiping you well this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Question. What are we distracted by? We could be distracted by a variety of different things. We could be distracted by children. A child can come to you and ask for food and ask for toys and ask for snacks, and certainly... That is a huge distraction for us. In fact, if you're working and completing a job at a particular time, your child comes to you, and you could be distracted by that. Or you could be distracted by the uncleanness of your environment, of your closet, of your kitchen. You're supposed to do certain work, and you remember that your closet is a mess. So you went to organize your closet, or you saw that your kitchen is full of dishes that hasn't been done, so you go and do your dishes and clean up your table, and you're doing all that, everything, except doing the very work that you're supposed to do. Or you're distracted simply by your own mind. Certainly that is a possibility. You could be doing that work, and you're just now staring at the window, and all of a sudden, 10 minutes pass, and you're daydreaming about something, and you still haven't got done what you're supposed to do. Perhaps one of the most pertinent or most common felt distraction which we have in our lives is distraction of social media. We're distracted by social media. You try to turn your phone off, and, but you're afraid that someone might call you or there'll be an important message, so you put on silent. You put on silent, you think, you know what, that'll be okay, but that notification comes and that message beeps and you're looking at it and all of a sudden you're just scrolling around Facebook and Instagram and you're distracted. Distracted. You're not getting the work that you're supposed to be doing done. Such is also our failure in the very beginning. We failed against God when God told us to do something. God made us. He made us so that we would obey Him, so that we'd be undistractedly devoted to Him. It was a job, a particular job that's mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, in which He says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea 
and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. There's an important job that you're supposed to do, and I'm supposed to do, which is to represent God and to really do His work. Let us manage on behalf of God in this world. Of course, that was short-lived. We're very distracted in the very beginning as well. We're supposed to live in holiness for God, but Satan came to us and distracted us with a prospect, saying that if you disobey God, if you don't do what God tells you to do, if you yield the fruit which God tells you not to eat, you'll be better. You, you could be like God. You don't, you don't have to walk in this path which God told you to walk. You, you could actually have a different life in which you are God yourself, which is sounded wonderful, I guess, to Adam and Eve, and but the result was that it wasn't. It wasn't wonderful at all. Because of that action, sin came to the world. Sin is that evil heart attitude which we have, which we all experience, we all felt at some point in our lives. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are the evil intents of our hearts which we felt and if it's carried out, certainly in action or in words, it destroys us, destroys humanity, destroys relationships. And this is the world which we're in today. And God could have left us there. Could have said, you know what? And there's judgment because God is holy and right and he will judge. But he's love. See, the whole story of the Bible is about God coming for us. And he loved us and he sent his son Jesus to earth to provide a way of salvation for us. Jesus came, lived the perfect life, a perfect life he lived so that he may gift that perfect life to you and to me when we believe. And he died on the cross. As he died on the cross, he was paying for the punishment which we deserve for our sins. And he rose from the dead. As he rose from the dead, he was showing us that if we believe unto him, we will also rise from the dead. There is an ending in which we will be with God forever and ever in eternity. Like the good ending, that is. That is God's salvation for us. If we believe unto Him today, then certainly who we have become is different than who we were. We were those who were seeking after our own flesh, seeking after our own desires. But now, according to Romans chapter 6, verse 18, we have been set free set free from sin, and we become slaves of righteousness. We have our focus driven to a different direction, back to where we need to be, which is that we need to be focused upon God and His will for our lives. That is the hard attitude of believers. However, the reality exists still that we are still distracted because we still carry a body of sin, a body in which we're prone to sin, a body in which we're tempted by sin. Romans chapter 7, verse 21 says, I find it to be a law. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. This is Paul's experience, is that there are temptations all around us, in us, but also outside of us because people could tempt us to be distracted from God. And this is really what Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy. There are distractions, of course, from within, but there are distractions from without. People who are distracting us from the will of God in our lives. They're distracting us from the message of God. They're distracting us from the purpose of God. We're going to see both here today. First, we see a distraction from the very message of God itself, the gospel message. 
Let's look at verse 3. It says this. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myth and endless genealogy which promotes speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith or of faith or by faith. As we read this, what we're seeing is Paul writing to Timothy a letter. And to begin with, we have to give a little introduction. And this is really Paul's encouraging letter to a spiritual son. Paul has been in ministry at this point for many years, for more than two decades. He's been an apostle to the Gentiles, apostle to the Jews. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, that's his goal, what God's called him, saying he's an instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and to the children of Israel. He is to proclaim the gospel to all, to all of his, all of uh, Roman Empire. And of course, in the Roman Empire, there are Israelites and there are so Gentile people there. He is to proclaim the gospel to all to bring both people groups as one in Christ. That's his goal. Now, as he's doing this, there's a man that he met who he is investing in, and that person is Timothy. We saw the connection between Paul and Timothy in Acts chapter 16, verse 1 through 3, in which it says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well-spoken by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for all knew that his father was a Greek. Now we see this, and we know that Paul has taken Timothy. Timothy was a good brother. He was well spoken of by others, and Paul really liked this man, so Paul took Timothy along because Paul needed help. John Marks left Paul. Paul didn't want him back. So he took another young man named Timothy, say, hey, Timothy, you're going to come alongside with me, and I'm going to teach you the ropes. You're going to help me. I'm going to disciple you to be a man of God. I'm going to disciple you to be the pastor you need to be because one day you're going to take up a church, like the church of Ephesus, which we see here in 1 Timothy. But before that, I'm going to train you. I'm going to train you to do the work of ministry. And so throughout Paul's missionary journeys, what we see is Paul constantly training Timothy in every ministry opportunity. Acts chapter 17, verse 13 to 14, we see Paul training Timothy in Paul's second missionary journey while there was a riot against Paul and Paul driven out of town. Timothy stayed in town. We see these words when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea. Also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Silas Timothy remained while Paul left, continued to the work of ministry. In Paul's third missionary journey, we saw Paul sending Timothy to Corinth, and Corinth wasn't an easy ministry to be in, but Timothy is to go. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, we see Paul saying, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach him everywhere in every church. And then lastly, we see Paul sending Timothy to Philippi in Paul's fourth missionary journey, Paul's in prison by now, but Timothy wasn't. So Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 22 to 23, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how it will go with me. So Paul is sending Timothy everywhere, training him. And here, as we arrive in 1 Timothy, we're finding Paul arriving at a point that's beyond all these points because Paul has already been in prison. Now Paul is set free from prison, and Paul is traveling with Timothy to Ephesus again to minister to his church in Ephesus, but Paul has got to move on. He's got to go to Macedonia. He's left Timothy there to instruct Timothy on certain tasks 
which needed to be done. He said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, as I urged you while I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may, again, do these things. What are the things which Paul is instructing Timothy to? Well, in this book, we're going to see a variety of different things which are very important for Timothy now as a young pastor, perhaps 35 years old, as he's now the lead pastor over this church. Paul is instructing Timothy to care for the church in certain ways, and there are a variety of different ways that Timothy should care for the church, things that he should be watching out for, things that he should be getting done. See, structural issues, establishment of elders, establishment of deacons. We see uh, uh, putting uh, worship in order, men leading worship, godly men leading worship, administrative things, how to care for widows, etc. But beyond that, or even before all that, before Timothy instructed to do any of that, there's one instruction that supersedes it all, which is instruction of maintaining doctrine within the church. Before you even talk about administrative things, before you even talk about changing the bylaws or constitution or whatever it is that you need to change in terms of church structure. Before any of that, there is the change or the maintaining of doctrine to make sure whatever is taught from the pulpit, whatever is taught in the Bible studies, whatever is taught in any teaching atmosphere within the church, that particular teaching is orthodox. That particular teaching is true to the Word of God. We see this in verse 3, which Paul says, I urge you while I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul says, I am charging you to charge any people who teach a different doctrine than what you and I teach to charge them not to do so. Now, we know what Paul and Timothy taught. They taught the gospel. We'll see this later. We see this now, actually. Paul said this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 to 12. I have you now, brothers that the gospel that was preached by me was not man's gospel, nor did I receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Everywhere Paul went, he taught the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4, he said, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that was buried, that was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture. He's teaching the gospel that Jesus came, lived, died, rose again. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 2, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the doctrine that is taught by Timothy and by Paul. Now, there are individuals within the church that are teaching different doctrines. What kind of doctrine? Anything else, whether it be moralism, how to be a better person, how to be a social activist in your community, how to be a better parent, how to be successful in your job. Not bad things. They're just not the gospel. Now, if you teach the gospel and say, hey, as you believe in the gospel, then you apply these things to your life, then yes, that's a wonderful thing. But what happens is that people have moved away from the gospel, and now this church has become a different place. It's no longer the place where truth is held, no longer the place where truth is proclaimed. And Timothy is charged to continue that proclamation of truth. In fact, he is to charge other people not to teach anything else. Him as a pastor has the ability to do so. As a pastor of a church, nobody is to tell the pastor what to preach. No boards and comedians say, hey, you can't preach this. That's not right. The pastor or pastors of the church are to guard the church in doctrine. 
That's why we have our church primary doctrine. We have in our church what we teach doctrine. We put it on the website. Some churches don't even want doctrinal statement on the website because they feel that you'll separate people from coming. You know what? If a church doesn't have a doctrinal statement on the website, I don't want to go to that church because I'm not sure what a church is about. See, the church needed to be about doctrine, about truth. It's not just a social atmosphere. It's not just a, a, a social place where people can go and, and just find ways to somehow live a better life. It's a place where Jesus Christ is known, where Jesus Christ is taught, where Jesus Christ is proclaimed. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, it says, The church is the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. It's meant to be a place where truth is proclaimed. That is what church is to be about. Timothy is to guard that. Now, there are individuals within that particular church have begun to wander off in different things. They begin to teach different doctrines. You say, well, if it's so different and so, dif uh, so difficult, actually so dangerous rather, then we should know what kind of doctrine they teach. And certainly we know that they're different. They're different in a the sense they're not the gospel. But also have a hint here on what kind of thing which they taught. We see this in verse 4. They had devoted themselves to myth and fables. So the myth is really our fables. We actually see a very similar rebuke uh, or admonition, rather, to Titus or for Titus to make sure he handles this. In Titus chapter 1, verse 14, for Titus and fables. And this is everywhere within the Jewish setting. And there's something which you might know of or something which you might not know of, but book of Enoch, the book of Jubilee. These are the things which you can find. And Jewish people actually in those days have written these books to sound like they're from Scripture. It sounds like Enoch wrote it. It sounds like some famous person wrote it. The Gospel of Thomas, perhaps in the New Testament, you have people who did not write these books, but these books are labeled after these people, and within those books are heresies of all kinds, imaginational kinds. Thoughts of all kinds are very, very interesting, but just not true. For example, in the book of Jubilee, it talks about angels, how the angels, uh, they celebrate the Sabbath, even pre-creation, how angels were circumcised, and, and talked about animals, and, and how, how, how they spoke before Adam and Eve fell, and they had the ability to speak. That's what the book of Jubilee says. And that the language of heaven is Hebrew. I mean, these are the thoughts that are brought to the church. Instead of focusing on the gospel, instead of focusing on what Jesus had done for us and his sacrifice for us, for our sins, people have begun to move beyond that to say, you know what, that's for the baby Christians. That's, that's for the people who just come to the faith. But for me, I'm a more advanced Christian. I'm going to talk about these things. I'm going to go out there and discover these things. In fact, they have genealogies. Verse 4 says, endless genealogies. Now, we know what genealogies are for. Genealogies are, are for the purpose of identifying tribal lands. You belong to the tribe of so-and-so, and so therefore, lands allocated to you. That's why genealogies were important. Or, and actually for most importantly, is for Christ. Genealogy is to, to identify the tribe of Judah so that we know that Jesus Christ came through the right genealogy. That's what genealogies are for. But for these false teachers, what they've done is they mix fables with genealogies. They say, well, you got this person and mixed with this knowledge and this thought from the book of Jubilee and the book of Enoch and combined together and you have this theology or this thought and, and, and coming together, all of a sudden you have this whole story of theology 
that is just not true, and it's just distracting from the real truth, the real focus, which you all should be focused on, which is the gospel of Christ. I think about modern ways which we could be distracted. Heard that word for gematria? Gematria basically is the assigning of numbers, assigning of numbers to, to, to Hebrew letters, something that hap- happened very, very long, very, very, oh, it's a long time ago, even 700 B.C. it started using gematria. So you have Aleph, that's one, and Beth, that's two, and Koph, that's three, and it goes all the way down the Hebrew letters. So the number, for example, for Satan is 364. That's the number, according to gematria, for Satan, the Hebrew word for Satan. So a rabbi, a rabbinic literature said, hey, that means that Satan has 364 days in which he's persecuting Israel, but that ends on the Day of Atonement. That's the kind of theology that's been spread through gematria, through this study of numerology and numbers that really cannot be proven any otherwise, and now they're just up to man's imagination. Endless genealogy, endless thoughts which are of absolutely no use to any one of us. Modernly speaking, we also do that. People use verse numbers. Did you know verse numbers are not in the Bible? They're not inspired at all. Remember one time this on TV and this channel, this charismatic show, and this person is like, and this is a while ago, um, in the, uh, back in the days, this person said, you know what? God had a reason for me. The reason is that he had me born in 1926. So what's, why do you think God had you born in 1926? Well, because God wants my verse, my life verse, to be Matthew 19.26. So they turn to Matthew 19.26. It says, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Wow, that's a wonderful life verse for you. That God had you born in 1926 just so that that verse could be you. Wow. So what about me? I'm born in 1934. Oh, let's turn to Matthew 19.34. You turn to it, you know, it's like, if you turn to it, you'll, you'll not find it because Matthew 19 doesn't have 34 verses. So they, they're like, okay, well, it does have 34 verses. What do you do? Let's do a Luke. Luke 19.34 says what? I turn to it. It's like, oh, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. So that's my verse. The Lord has need of me. And it's like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. It's talking about the jackass. It's talking about the donkey. It's not about you. It's unfortunate that people have all kinds of wrong interpretation on Scripture on the basis of the, these thoughts and this combination of numbers and, 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 and their own imagination, vain thoughts, Paul says here, that are not on the basis of the right understanding of Scripture, but just from their own twisted thinking and distract themselves from the real purpose of the Word of God which is the gospel, which is living for him. You see, everything is not about you. You don't just turn to a Bible passage and say, you know what, I'm just going to look everywhere and just point at a number and, okay, that's about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. And until you find out why and how it's about Jesus, you're not going to find out how it's about you. Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, explaining to the two disciples in the man's road, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all Scripture the things concerning himself. See, all the Scripture from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 22 is all about who? Jesus. It's all about Christ. It's not about you. It's about him. 
And until you figure out how it's about him, you'll never find out how it's about you. That's why John wrote the book of John. John said in John chapter 20, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You may believe. And then once you believe, then you will know how to apply it in your particular application and circumstance. So we see here the false teachers here are distracting, distracting you from the very message of the gospel, thinking you can find Bible codes and different kind of things that are coincidences and things that no one else sees and they're distracting you from what is clearly proclaimed in Scripture, which is the gospel. Not only are they distracting you from the gospel, they're also distracting you from the purpose of the gospel. Purpose of the gospel. Let's read this in verse 46. It says, Nor to devote themselves to myth and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that each use from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions. So we see here five. Five negative influences from false teacher. First, we see in verse 4, speculations. They bring to you speculations. They're promoting speculations. That's what these false teachers do. You're coming to church and you want to hear the word of God preached and you're supposing that you're going to hear what you've been hearing all your life. All of a sudden, you have a brand new seminary student coming from a liberal seminary telling you, hey, you know what? Maybe, maybe this book, 1 Timothy, isn't written by Paul. Maybe Matthew didn't write Matthew. Maybe God actually didn't create the world. Maybe uh, Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 11 is all myth. Maybe the world is actually just the way it is because of evolution. I think it is, and God just used evolution. And maybe, maybe, maybe Jesus was a homosexual because John leaned at his breast, and that's kind of a gay thing to do. And bring all these kind of maybes, and all of a sudden you don't know what you believe in. Right? Maybe we shouldn't trust in Scripture because it's all written by misogynist men, and, and you shouldn't trust it because, because, you know, no woman wrote it, and if no woman wrote, wrote it, they would wrote something different, and certainly we do believe woman has a voice, and so certainly it cannot be from God. So you should take whatever you could take from it and leave what you don't believe. And so all of a sudden you have all these speculations, and you don't know what you're believing anymore. One or two years sitting in a church like that, you have no idea what God is saying. You're just filled with speculation. These people, they don't care whether you're founded in faith or not. They don't want you to be founded in faith because the more they can bring you to this knowledge, which are what you call higher criticism, university level, professors who do not even believe in God, is just spewing off thoughts and speculations and bring it to the church. Nobody now has an idea of what God actually says. Paul says that's, that's actually not a spiritual gift. Your spiritual gift it's not a spiritual gift for you to come to church and say, hey, did you ever know that this, and, and the Bible actually doesn't say that? That's not a spiritual gift. What a spiritual gift is, not special speculation, but a spiritual gift is that we will be founded in faith. We actually come to church and, and, and actually feel more affirmed than what we believe in. We feel more satisfied knowing that what we believe in has been true, has always been true. That is the work of a true teacher in Christ. We don't want you to feel unassured about your faith, want you to be even more assured about your faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, we see Paul saying, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. We're to stand firm. 
In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit. He wants people to stand firm. He wants you and I to be firm. If a true teacher in Christ is truly loving the church and not a false teacher who doesn't care about the church, he wants the church that is a true teacher in Christ, want the church to be firm in faith to be established in faith. That is the work of a true teacher. A false teacher could care less. The second influence, the second negative influence, we see this in verse 4, is that they do not promote a stewardship from God as by faith. They do whatever they do rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. What is stewardship? Stewardship is management. Use our time for God. That is being stewarding things that's what it means to steward things, that we're managing things for God, for the glory of God. That's what we're supposed to do. There's one great story in the Bible about stewardship. It's Matthew chapter 25. It's about three men who've been given great things by God. There's three men given five talents, two talents, one talent, right? And the one with five talents went out, the one with five more, and he had great joy in his heart. Great joy. Said to the master, Master, look, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 20, I, I, I made five more talents. And master is like, great. Verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of a master. Enter. Come. You're happy. I'm happy. We're glad together. So it's not just talking about money, but it's talking about everything. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 through 11, we see we all receive gifts from God. And we're to use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through the Son, Jesus, or through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Whatever it is that you've been given by God, your ability to speak, your ability to give, your ability to administrate, your ability to do whatever, help with another project in the church, ability to teach, use it for the glory of God. That's what God is calling the churches to do. And true teacher in Christ will want this for their church. But the false teachers, again, they could care less. They don't want that. They just want speculation and whatever it is. And they want to promote themselves instead of seeing this wonderful work being done at the church. Another negative influence, and this will be the third one, is that they do not promote love that comes from a pure heart. We see in verse 5, it says they aim of our charge. is love that issues from a pure heart. This is what true pastors would do, true teachers would do. True, true teachers want to promote love in the congregation that comes from a pure heart. False teachers, again, they could care less. But this is the, the heart attitude we all need to have because this is the greatest commandment from God. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 38, we see Jesus give an answer to the Pharisees who asked them, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is of the utmost priority for us. And we're to love people from a pure heart. That means that we have no other ulterior motives. How do you know that is the case for you? And for me, well, Jesus actually gave a great definition of how do you know that your love is pure. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 44, you heard, it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is the purest, purest kind of love, right? If you love your neighbor, you love those who could give back to you, and perhaps you're loving them just because you get something back, but now you love your enemy who's going to persecute you, and you know you're going to get nothing back, and they're still going to persecute you some more. That you know, wow, that is pure love. You're not doing this because ulterior motives. You're really doing this because you are loving God, and you really love this person. Jesus gave further explanation in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 to 20, uh, 40 to 42. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go with one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who borrow from you. And if you hurt you, you still give to them. This is love. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said, But love your enemies and do good and then expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for He's kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Give money to people who's going to hurt you, who might not even give it back to you. That is what? That's love. That's loving your enemies. That's the purest kind of love. That's what true teachers in Christ would seek to promote in their congregation, but again, the false teachers, they could care less. They could care less. And then fourthly, the fourth negative influence of the false teachers is this. They do not promote a life of good conscience. They do not promote a life of good conscience. We see this in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. What is a conscience? What is a good conscience? Well, let's talk about conscience. Conscience is the very gift of God given to you so that you may know what God's will is for your life. Even as an unbeliever, God's imprinted His law in your heart. Romans chapter 2, verse 14 to 15, we see these words. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, they show the works of the law written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accusing or even excusing them. God's saying this, saying that there's a law written in your heart, and that law is what God is telling you in terms of what you need to do. Now, that law is God's law. And certainly that's why we feel bad when we do certain things that are against God's law. When you lie, cheat, whatever it is, right? You feel bad about it because His law is in your heart. You feel bad because it violates your conscience. But as we know also, our conscience could be formed and deformed. It's not a perfect imprint of God's law because it could change. It could be seared. It could be overactive. In fact, we see an example of overactive conscience, a conscience that puts more stringent requirements than what God actually has said. In Acts chapter 10, we see Peter doing this. It was an overactive conscience in Peter's part. See, Peter has never eaten anything that's unclean, that Gentiles eat. But now Christ had come. Christ broken down the dividing wall, and God's dropped down a sheet of things which had all kinds of animals and telling Peter, hey, Peter, rise up, kill, and eat. And Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verse 14, By no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. I can't eat this. It violates my conscience. And God said in verse 15, what God has made clean, you are not going to call common. Don't call what God's made clean common. God's called Gentiles to come to the kingdom of God. So Peter, even though he wouldn't eat with Gentiles, even though he wouldn't eat the food that Gentiles eat, had now had to form his conscience again around the word of God. His conscience is overactive. He plays too much stringent requirement beyond even what God is saying. There's an overactive conscience. But then worse than that, there is a seared conscience, a conscience that is 
seared, in which you no longer feel anything. You're not sensitive as you need to feel. You know who has a seared conscience in the Bible? David, right? David had a seared conscience. Had an affair with Bathsheba, had a child, and never in his mind thought about killing Uriah, right? At this moment, at least. Why would we want to kill Uriah? He just wants to hide the sin. Didn't want people to find out that he's adulterer. Didn't want to find out that he's committed his great sin. I mean, he wants people to look at him as example. He's the king of Israel at this moment. But Uriah wouldn't go home. Uriah wouldn't be with his wife. He couldn't hide the fact that the baby was not his. But David's is going to get find out. So David said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do something. I'm going to just send Uriah out there. He will not even by my own hands. He's going to survive on his own, and I'm going to pull the military back. So he's out there by himself. I mean, he can live. If he's really good, he can run. I mean, it's not me. I didn't kill him. The Ammonites killed him, right? So after a while, you even begin to believe in that and say, you know what? It's not by my hand. It's not by my hand. I wasn't responsible. So until when? Until Nathan came to David and said, no, you. You're the man. See, David didn't even, didn't even think about it anymore. His heart had been seared. His conscience had been seared. He's got so used to it. No longer, he's no longer sensitive to his sins. So what we should do? What we should do is to live in a good conscience. That means that we conform our hearts to what? To the very law of God, to the word of God, to the will of God. We conform our conscience to that. And then we seek to obey it, seek to live by it. Paul said in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, this is how he lived. Brothers, I live my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. He wants to live in good conscience. Good conscience is a good idea. That means that you're confident. That means that you're not walking around ashamed and feeling bad about yourself and what you do or being afraid to find out what other people might know about you. No. You have a good conscience. See, true teachers of God want this for their congregation. We want this to be experienced by all of us. The false teachers, again, they care less. They care less. And the fifth negative influence of the false teachers is this. They do not promote a sincere faith. We see in the verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. This is what true teachers do. On the opposite, false teachers care less. They don't want that. They don't want a sincere faith in the people of the congregation. They care less about this. What's a sincere faith? Sincere faith basically means that you are sincere, that you're not acting, that you're not pretending to be someone you're not. Jesus actually talked about this in Matthew chapter 5 or chapter 6 of hypocrites, those people who are pretending. They're pretenders or hypocrites who are hypocritical in their giving, hypocritical in their praying, hypocritical in their fasting, right? Matthew chapter 2. Oh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, hypocrites in giving. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, hypocrites in praying. Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, hypocrites in fasting. They're just doing it in front of other people for other people to see so that other people can respect them. But Jesus says, if you want to be sincere, if you want to make sure that you're real, you're the real deal, then do it this way. Matthew chapter 6, verse 4, do it what? In secret. In secret. Do it so no one else sees it, but only the Father sees, and then He will reward you. Fast in secret. Give in secret. 
Pray in secret. Don't do it in front of other people only. Don't pray just when you're other people. Don't pray just when other people ask you to. Don't give when other people see and expect you to do. Do it in secret. And that's how you know that you're not a pretender. You're not a hypocrite. You have a sincere faith. See, true teachers in Christ will want this for their congregation. And false teachers, on the other hand, care less. They care less. So what we see in false teachers is this, in verse 6, they swerved from these. Certain persons, by swerving from these, literally is a picture of them going in that direction. I mean, everybody, when they got saved, had to believe in the gospel, right? Or everybody, when they come to church, when they enter the membership process, they believe or say they believe in the gospel. And the gospel is this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 to 4, For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that was buried, that was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. I mean, they believed that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. They believed in all of that to begin with. But then as they're going down this path, you see the, the, the picture, right? They're swerving, swerving from the road onto another road. Missed the mark, missed the point. They did not continue in that path. That the people who are rising up from the midst of them. Acts chapter 20, verse 29 to 30. Actually, Jesus, uh, Paul warned about this. I know, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from my own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. These are the people who passed the membership process, saying they believed in God. Say that, hey, uh, I, I'm on the same page as you. But then years down the line, they begin to believe in something else, to swarm into other ideas. Say, you know what? The gospel, that's for baby Christians. But now, for me, I'm in numerology. I'm studying all the numbers and gematria. I'm studying UFOs. I'm studying aliens. I'm studying all these things that, 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 that people are saying in the unseen realm, the, the angels and interaction between different levels of angels. That's for advanced Christians. But you baby Christians, you stay with the baby stuff, the gospel about Jesus. That's the baby stuff. It's unfortunate. Did you know all cults, all religious cults, the ones which are not following Christ in the gospel, all base their theology on some kind of minor description in the Bible that they twist to make their own agenda? I think about Jehovah's Witness, about 144,000. I mean, there, there's great truth about 144,000, but they're twisting that because most people don't read that part of Revelation. They don't understand it. They, they think it's all symbolic, and so Joe will just come and knock on your door, and 144,000, what's that? My church never taught me about 144,000. You're drawn away. Mormons come, knock on your door. Hey, another testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bet your church didn't teach you about this. You're drawn away. Drawn away over all these, by all these things which are, are, are things which you never heard and say to you, hey, these are the more advanced versions of Christianity that your church would never teach you about. I remember one time I was having a discussion with an individual on Hollywood Boulevard, uh, which is uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness that were there, and they set up in front of Adobe Theater, and I was drawn to a discussion with them and just talking with them about their, their theology and uh, how they don't believe in Christ as God. So I was showing them from Scripture how Jesus is Christ. And they're trained, right? They're trained to talk and talk and talk. And they'll never back down, go in circles with them all day long until I ask them this one word, this question. Wait, do you, do you know the gospel? This person looked at me. What? No, the gospel. What is the gospel? 
This person doesn't know the gospel. He's been trained by Jehovah's Witnesses to talk about blood transfusions and 144,000 and, and Jesus Christ being the Son of God, but not God. But he doesn't know the gospel. Or this person. So I talked to this person and I told this person, hey, let me show you the gospel. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. I share with this person, and this person's eyes lit up. It was a she, actually. And she said, what? She never heard it. She's never heard the gospel. And, I, and then I talked to her and said, why are you out here? Are you earning your salvation? Did you know that it's a free gift given to you? Through Christ who accomplished everything for you. She didn't have anything more to say. She heard it. She received it. It was the most profitable conversation I had with a Jehovah's Witness up to date because I did not get dragged into the minute details of their theology. They could go all day long. They could beat you down with whatever it is that they studied. But we just focused on Christ. Do you know who Jesus is? And do you know the gospel? And do you know why he had to be God in order to do this for you? You know, conversation between Jesus and Samaritan woman? Exact same thing. Samaritan woman comes to Jesus and tries to distract Jesus from the main point. Saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, you shouldn't be talking to me. Oh, Jesus, you, you Jews say that you guys worship over there and we worship over here and et cetera, et cetera. And Jesus says, hey, hold on for a sec. Hold on for a second. Let me point you to the truth. Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 23, the hour is coming and now is here where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for Father is seeking for such person to worship him. Here's the point. It's not about here. It's not about there. It's about true worship in spirit truth. Do you have that? Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? And the woman says, well, I don't know. You know, I, I know when the Christ comes, the Messiah comes, he will reveal to us all things. And Jesus said in John chapter 4, verse 26, I am he. I who speak to you am he. He's always pointing to himself. He's not involved in these silly discussions, involved in speculations and, and, and just uh, thoughts that nobody ever thought about. He's pointing to himself. He's pointing to the main thing. So we're to point to Jesus as well. See, there are a lot of things you and I could talk about at church. A lot of things. You could be talking about your car. You could be talking about your house. You could be talking about whatever. Stock market, money, job. But what is the most important thing you and I should be talking about? Christ, right? You should be talking about Jesus. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. You can think of all kinds of things, but what comes out of your mouth will either discourage a person or encourage a person. If you say things that are wrong or things that are non-essential or things that are hurtful to another person, yes, you will discourage that person. But if you are focused and if you come to church and say, you know what, I'm going to focus you to use my words to demonstrate who Christ is, then you will encourage another person in Christ. You could choose to do so. For Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, we see an instruction from Paul for us to do so, saying, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. See, we're to be purposeful in using our words to build another person up. We're called to use our words wisely, to point to the gospel, 
and to point to the purpose of the gospel. And this is exactly what Paul does at the end of his life. Paul, at the end of his life, in his first Roman imprisonment, and he's about to stand for trial, he said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, he's about to say a lot of words. But he said, it is my eager expectation and hope that when not, not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will always be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He wants Christ to be honored. He wants his words to demonstrate Christ. He wants to tell people about Jesus, to Caesar, to the Praetorian guards. He wants his words to be purposeful. He's been praying. He comes to this situation, and you could do the same thing as you come to church, a fellowship, Bible study, a home, whatever it is, that you're praying that your words will honor Christ. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says this, that your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. How do we do so? It's always by proclaiming the greatness of God that saved the senior, sinner, <clears throat> sinner like us. John Noon was a slave trader. And in this life, said, I don't remember much, but I remember this. What did he say? That I'm a great sinner, but Christ, what? is a great Savior. May this be our conviction in all of our conversation in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful, Lord, to think about what church should be, how we should consider our role within the church. Certainly, there are individuals who will come to church and distract the church from the main gospel message, talk about themselves and their own desires, their own whims, and their own personal anecdotes and their own experiences, which are fine, but there all are nothing unless we're connecting them to Christ who died for us. We pray that we would let our thoughts be centered around Jesus and our conversations be centered around Jesus so that we may be encouragement to one another in a place that is so diverse, Lord. May there be one unity, a unity which people can expect when they come to church. They know that this is a place where we live out Jesus in which we also talk about Jesus. We thank you. Give us that grace, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.